Welcome to the Physics and Engineering and Medicine podcast. I'm Gemma Bale, here with Jamie Guggenheim. Hi everyone. We're meeting researchers to learn about the latest developments in medical physics and biomedical engineering. We're talking to Dr. Karin Shmueli, Associate Professor in Magnetic Resonance Imaging. Enjoy. Yeah, so before we get into meeting our guest today, actually, Gemma, you've got some news, I think. So yeah, so I'm actually no longer at UCL. I'm now a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. So I'm setting up a new lab there, but I'm going to be carrying on my role as a honorary UCL member. You haven't got rid of me just yet. So Karen, everyone seems to think that MRI is quite an interesting and exciting technique. Why do you think that is? Well, it absolutely is. I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's really so flexible. I think it's also because the only thing that you experience going into an MRI system is kind of noise and, you know, you don't feel anything really. Yet you get these exquisite images. I think because it's so flexible, you can look at so many different types of images with MRI. You can look at structural images, functional images. You can look at the nerve fibres in the brain and how they're connected with diffusion MRI. You can do functional MRI to look at how the brain works and how it's connected together. You can even look at bones. You can look at all kinds of things. And so I think people are excited by that. I think also because MRI is relatively recent in terms of its invention. I guess it kind of came about in the 80s and really broke into the hospital. And so maybe that's why people think it's still quite new and exciting. Also, it's really high resolution. So you can see really incredible details. And we're also we're always pushing the frontier. So there's always higher field strength magnets being invented so that we can see even finer details and get even more signal and do even more with MRI. So maybe that's some of the reasons why people think it's exciting or maybe just because it's in films and lots of things fly into the scanner and it looks kind of cool. <laughs> so you talked about higher field strength magnets. So how do you use magnets to get these amazing pictures? Can you give us a basic sort of overview of MRI 101 sort of thing? <laughs> I will do my best. So this is funny because this is a question I usually get asked, you know, I go to a party, you will say, what do you do? I say, I do MRI. And they say, well, how does that work? So I do my very best. <laughs> We are made up of mostly water. Those water molecules, as I'm sure you all know, are H2O molecules. So they've got two hydrogen nuclei. Those nuclei are protons. So we have a lot of protons in us. And those protons, we can think of them a bit like tiny planets. So they're almost like planet Earth orbiting around their own axis. And they have this magic property called spin which means that a bit like the Earth, they have a magnetic moment. So they act a bit like a tiny, tiny bar magnet. And when you put someone inside the very strong magnetic field that the MRI scanner provides, those bar magnets tend to overall line up with that main magnetic field. And that means that there's this tiny net magnetization that we can measure. That's the source of our MRI signal. Now, we can't measure it when it's lined up with the main magnetic field because the main magnetic field is so much stronger than that tiny extra magnetization. So what we have to do is we have to put some energy in to perturb that net magnetization. And we do that using radio waves. So it's very similar radio frequencies to the kinds of frequencies that all the radio stations are transmitting on. And we put some of that energy in. And that means we can actually tip some of these little bar magnets, these proton magnetic moments from being lined up with the main magnetic field to pointing perpendicular to the main magnetic field. And that means we can actually detect them using kind of a pickup coil. And the reason that we get different signal in different regions, different tissues, 
different regions of the brain, let's say, is because the net magnetization that we've kind of excited using those radio frequency waves actually relaxes back to being aligned with the main magnetic field at different rates. So there are these different relaxation times that actually depend on the tissue composition and can be altered by pathology as well. So let's say you've got an excess of water in the tissue, then those relaxation times are going to be different. And so you get different signal depending on what's going on in the tissue. It was a very nice explanation. Uh, (laughs) Imagining that we're just full of these little tiny bar magnets. It does sound astonishingly difficult to measure. Was that something that was a scientific breakthrough that allowed that to be measured? Or was it the building of big magnets that allowed it to be done for the first time? I think with MRI, there's so many developments that have made it possible, and especially in the form that we have it today, um, Mm. that it's hard to say where to pinpoint the big breakthroughs. That was part of the reason that I got fascinated with MRI is that it builds on so much incredible science. And actually, in my lectures, I use kind of different sets of goggles, if you like, to look at it in different ways, because different ways of understanding how MRI works, different physical models that we can use. So we can actually look at it through a classical physics lens where, you know, these spinning charges are just that. And that's how they have these magnetic moments. But we can also look at it through a quantum mechanical lens. And actually, sometimes we have to in order to understand it. And that's where these protons have almost a magic quantity called spin, which I've heard, I I meant to look up who it was, but there's one of the sort of parents of MRI, someone who's Mm. really in the field, and I've heard him just talk about spin as being magic. So, you know, it's just, it's a model for understanding this special property of protons that they have that gives them this spin magnetic moment, which is a quantum mechanical property. And so it's really nice to kind of use all this different physics, and it all kind of builds on itself, obviously, through contributions of many different scientists over the years to make MRI what it is today. And also, I think the role of the hardware and MRI companies and engineering shouldn't be overlooked as well because all of that has to be put together into a package that will be robust and work in a hospital day after day after day. That's amazing yeah it's such a nice example of lots of different parts of physics coming together for a really medical application. Well in your introduction you were saying that you can use MRI to measure the brain and bone and like what is it best at measuring and and are there any tissues that it can't measure and, and why would that be? So I would say it's best at measuring soft tissue because that's where most of the water is. We can see bone, but we tend to have to use specialised MRI pulse sequences. That's the way we acquire the images is by firing a series of these radio frequency and gradient pulses into the person in the scanner. And so I think that it's best at looking at soft tissue in great detail rather than bone. We always say that x-rays are specialised for looking at bone, but MRI is really good at looking at things in 3D and we can kind of tune it to do all kinds of different things. So it makes it really flexible. But I think it's sort of bread and butter is looking at soft tissue in great anatomical detail. And what counts as soft tissue? Is it everything except bones? I think so. I mean, I think ligaments are sort of in between. They have very short relaxation times. So sometimes their MRI signal disappears a lot quicker than we'd like. So we have to be very fast and get in there if we want to image it. Um, so right. there's kind of a spectrum there. That's why. So bone not only has fewer protons, which which makes it have slightly less signal, but it also has very short relaxation times. So it means that the signal that we do have disappears very quickly. So we have to be very quick and fast and use rapid imaging techniques if we want to image bone well with MRI. Is there a simple reason for why different tissues have different relaxation times or is it quite complicated? There isn't just one relaxation time. There are different types of relaxation times. So that makes things a little bit more complicated. Mm. I'll go for one of the relaxation times that I think is a little bit easier to understand, which is something called T2 star relaxation, which depends on the homogeneity of the magnetic field. 
So how uniform is that magnetic field in the scanner? And you might think that's just an engineering problem, right? How well can you make that magnet to make a really nice uniform field? Well, that's part of it, but actually that's been solved pretty well. Most of the contributions actually come from little field perturbations and field inhomogeneities that are introduced by the tissue itself. So our tissue actually has magnetic properties and becomes magnetized by the magnetic field. And so it actually perturbs that field and creates a slightly non-uniform field. And so those non uniformities alter the relaxation time and so if there's a really nice uniform field then the signal will stick around a bit longer and if it's really non-uniform then it will decay very very quickly with an exponential decay with a time constant that's called t2 star so that's one of the relaxation times that i think is a little bit easier to understand <laughs> there's a lot of quantum mechanics as well going on so it's all about how the protons are exchanging energy so with T2 star relaxation, there's one component of it which is dependent on the field inhomogeneity, which I was talking about. And then the, the other component of it, which is kind of the T2 component of it, is to do with how quickly the protons exchange energy with each other. And that's mostly done through a process that's most easily understood in quantum mechanics called dipole-dipole interactions. The T2 star, I think that is a really great example because I think I understood most of what you said. Great. Uh, get the idea that for reasons that, again, are probably quite complicated, that local tissue regions are going to have a homogeneous or not homogeneous magnetic field yeah. um, as a consequence of their local properties. I don't find it easy to imagine then what would show up as bright and what would show up as dark. So that's a really good question. So it's a bit like when we decide to kind of take our snapshot and actually acquire our image or measure our signal. And the image will be bright where there's still plenty of signal around so it hasn't decayed away yet so where it has quite a long t2 star so it's taking a while to decay away and relax back to equilibrium and it would be dark where that signal has decayed away really quickly because there's a really inhomogeneous field and the signal has decayed and is gone <laughs> basically so i was wondering so mri as you said has been around since the 1980s and it's in like every hospital that you can think of what research are you working on like what is the thing that you are contributing and, and how does that fit into the history of MRI? <laughs> oh, wow okay well so most of the time when MRI images are collected the signal that we measure is the magnitude of a complex signal now when I say complex signal unfortunately I mean complex in the mathematical sense so I mean something that has a real part and an imaginary part if any of you can kind of delve back into the depths of mathematics A level <laughs> so the signal that we get from the MRI system is a complex signal by its nature so can you explain what those parts represent of the complex signal? So what, what is the real part and what is the imaginary part that you're picking up? OK, this is a really tricky question, especially without diagrams, but I'll do my best. We can think of that magnetization vector that is the source of our MRI signal. Remember, that was the thing that had lined up with the main magnetic field and that we'd excited. We tipped it into what we call the transverse plane. Okay, so imagine mm -hmm. this plane that is perpendicular to the main field in our scanner. And we've got this vector. It actually does something called precession. That's precession. <laughs> anyway, what it means is this vector is actually whirling around in the transverse plane at a very particular frequency called the Larmor frequency, named after Joseph Larmor. That frequency depends on the strength of the main magnetic field and the type of nucleus that we're looking at, which is protons in the case of clinical MRI. Okay, so this magnetization vector is like an arrow that's um, kind of spinning around in the transverse plane. 
And when we acquire an image, we're kind of measuring the magnitude of that vector, really. The real part of that vector and the, and the imaginary part of that vector, we can literally think of as the X component and the Y component of that vector in the transverse plane. So we can mm. almost think of the transverse plane as the complex plane. So actually, for me, complex numbers was a totally abstract concept in maths. And I thought, well, that's not so useful. But then when you start to get to the transverse plane in MRI, you actually see that it's something, you know, very concrete. So we've got one component of our magnetization vector that's real and one component of it that is imaginary. We can just think of them as the X component and the Y component. So why did I start talking about this? It's because in most of MRI, the images that we get are showing that magnitude signal. But that magnetization vector also has an angle in that transverse plane, depending mm -hmm. on when we take that snapshot, okay, when we acquire our image. And that angle in MRI, that's something called the phase of the signal. So that means that our magnetization vector has a magnitude and a phase, which is another way of explaining a complex number, right? It has a real part and an imaginary part, or alternatively, a magnitude and a phase. <laughs> Why have I gone into this long explanation of complex <laughs> signal? It's because what I do, we actually use the phase, which 99% of the time in MRI is just completely ignored, thrown away, not acquired, not measured. But we've been able to show over the last 10 years or so that using the phase is incredibly useful and can give us all sorts of extra information. And the thing that I focus on in my research group primarily is a property of tissues, which I mentioned before, but it's called its magnetic susceptibility. And I can explain a bit more about what that is. So magnetic susceptibility is a property a bit like conductivity or density or mm. you, know, you name it, any other material property, but it's a magnetic property. It tells you how that material or tissue is going to behave inside that magnetic field. And the reason that it's interesting is that it's actually very closely related to the tissue composition. So what is that tissue made up of? If we can make a map of the tissue susceptibility, we can actually look at whether that tissue's got an increase in iron content, myelin content, calcifications, other compounds that are incredibly physiologically and pathophysiologically interesting. So they, they change in disease and they can tell us a whole load about the tissue. So what we're trying to do is measure these phase images and calculate maps of tissue magnetic susceptibility from them and open this whole new window into tissue properties. Cool. So I'm imagining that if you were to just look at the magnitude of the signal, you may say you're looking at like a chunk of brain, you might just sort of get a grey, this is all brain sort of picture. But then if you are able to look at the phase, then you're able to start looking into slightly more detail at different things like how calcified the tissue is. Is that right? Or Yeah. So I think it's basically it's very complementary information. It's information mm. that you might see a hint of in the magnitude image, but you definitely see more in the phase image. I'll give you a very concrete example of that. So let's say you've got some microbleeds going on in your brain, which is not something that you want, but happens unfortunately with age, with dementia, with all kinds of vascular problems. So you've got these little microbleeds. Now that means that some of the blood is escaped into the tissue and leaves behind iron-rich deposits like hemosiderin and other compounds like that. Now, those compounds have a very high positive magnetic susceptibility. That means that when you put them inside the MRI scanner, they generate a very strong magnetization and perturb the magnetic field quite a lot. And that means that they create very large phase changes. And so they're very visible in phase images. And so, for example, in a magnitude image, you might see a hint of a tiny bit of decrease in contrast. But if you use a phase image, then you can really amplify that mm. susceptibility change that's caused by the microbleeds and really pick up those microbleeds. And in fact, 
that's the basis of technique that kind of preceded the technique that I have pioneered, which is called quantitative susceptibility mapping or QSM. But the sort of previous technique, which was also using the phase to amplify these kinds of changes, was called susceptibility weighted imaging or SWI. It's all a bit confusing. The terminology is all quite similar. <laughs> but yeah, SWI was invented in about 1994 or thereabouts. And that was a technique that preceded quantitative susceptibility mapping, which is what my group and I do. I completely understand now you can get sort of enhanced sort of contrast of what you're looking at in, say, the brain. So what are the advantages of doing that for the patients? What extra information can you give the doctors? I think one of the main applications of QSM is going to be so let's say, you know, what's what's going to hit the clinic first um, is going to be early diagnosis of neurodegenerative diseases and in particular Parkinson's disease. So this is because there are very specific increases in susceptibility in specific brain regions like the substantia nigra and other deep brain gray matter regions that, that they're rich in iron anyway. And they have an increased iron content in people with Parkinson's disease at quite an early stage of the disease. And there's been links also with the increase in susceptibility and the severity of the disease. And this has been corroborated in quite a few studies now. And so I think that's a really good example of where susceptibility mapping can really highlight those changes that wouldn't be visible in the magnitude images or would be too subtle to see in the magnitude mm. images. So you might be able to give a diagnosis of say Parkinson's earlier than you would with just regular MRI techniques? Yes hopefully um, and hopefully to kind of complement what the clinicians do to diagnose these kind of diseases or the clinical tests that they do and also for treatment monitoring so let's say you wanted to do a drugs trial in parkinson's disease you might use qsm as a biomarker to see if you're getting improvement let's say then the iron content in one of these regions like the substantia nigra wasn't going to increase as fast when patients are given this therapy for example karen where, where does that increased iron content come from do we is it the microbleeds <laughs> or do, do we not know i think most of the time, the iron in the brain in these deep brain gray matter regions is stored in the form of ferritin. So ferritin is this kind of big protein shell with lots of iron atoms in it. And it's just how iron is stored in tissue as far as I understand it. I think that that's what's increasing in Parkinson's, but I'm not quite sure. I also know that there's an increase in kind of iron metabolism when when things go wrong and it, there's lots of papers been written about this and I, I don't really know in detail exactly what's going on with the iron but that's just sort of one example in Parkinson's I mean there are lots of other pathophysiological changes that we can detect with QSM like calcifications which actually they're often found as incidental findings they can be perfectly benign but they can also happen along with tumors and then like you say you can also pick up these microbleeds and things which happen with age and with dementia there's also been increases in susceptibility and we infer increases in iron content that have been found to co-localize with increases in amyloid with amyloid pet by pet i mean positron emission tomography when you inject a radionuclide and detect it so um, when people have done PET MRI studies in people with dementia and Alzheimer's and that, so these changes have, have come together, we might be able to, let's say, avoid the PET study with the radiation dose and perhaps just rely on an MRI study and have a look at where those areas of iron increase are and infer then the increases in the amyloid aggregates, let's say. That's really exciting. Yeah. yeah, I think that's just at the beginning. That's part of the end goal of a European Research Council grant that I've got, which is looking at creating a kind of all singing, all dancing MRI sequence 
that measures many different things at once. And the ultimate goal there is to reveal very early changes in Alzheimer's disease. So one of the things I'm looking at is obviously susceptibility mapping. But other things I'm going to be looking at are conductivity mapping. So looking at changes in the electrical conductivity of tissue and also not just looking at structural changes. So right now we've only focused on looking at structural changes in the structural susceptibility, let's say, of the tissue. But you can also use QSM to look at functional changes in the brain. You can argue that the susceptibility mapping is an even more direct measure of functional changes in the brain than conventional functional MRI, which uses changes in the magnitude signal, which are kind of downstream of the susceptibility changes in a way, because what really is changing is the level of oxyhemoglobin in the blood. Deoxyhemoglobin is highly paramagnetic. That means it has a high positive magnetic susceptibility. And so if we can directly measure the susceptibility changes, then we're kind of measuring almost upstream of the magnitude changes, which are only kind of probing the field perturbations that come as a result of the susceptibility changes because of the oxyhemoglobin changes. It's all a bit of a chain. But yeah, so that's the idea with functional susceptibility mapping. What we're trying to do is develop a very rapid sequence that's about five minutes long because obviously people who have mild cognitive impairments or are at the beginning of dementia might not be able to stay very still in the scanner for a very long time. So we want to make it a really kind of comfortable technique for patients, a very rapid technique. So the idea is that we develop this integrated sequence that's capable of giving us structural susceptibility maps conductivity maps, information about functional susceptibility changes, and the kind of really wacky piece is looking at functional conductivity changes, so changes in electrical conductivity over time. Well, my first question is the conductivity. So you said that's electrical conductivity. How do you measure that with a magnet? Ah, so this is a new field for me and my group, and it's known in electrical properties tomography because we're now probing the electrical properties of the tissue rather than the magnetic properties Mm -hmm. and this can also be measured from the phase of the MRI signal so electrical conductivity is related to the phase of the signal that we measure and if we were plotting the phase against our acquisition time then the slope of that would be the magnetic field variations that allow us to calculate the susceptibility. And the intercept of that phase versus time graph is what we use to calculate the electrical conductivity. This, as I say, this whole field called EPT or electrical properties tomography, which is how to do that, how to do that calculation. So it's kind of like an offset of your magnetic properties. Yeah, it's, it's like another aspect of the magnetic properties. Yeah. We can also measure the radio frequency field that we are generating when we perturb our magnetization. That's also related to the conductivity. Is that one quantitative? Would you get a number that was reproducible if you took a slice of brain out and measured it independently? It's quantitative in the sense that it will give you a quantity, but I think it's also a a newer field. So it's not as developed as QSM. So there haven't been as many like repeatability and reproducibility studies as there have been in QSM. So I think there needs to be quite a bit more work on EPT before it hits the clinic. Mm. So it's a bit more speculative and it's quite new, but it gives us, again, it's another window into a different property of the tissue. There's two kind of physiological aspects that should influence the electrical conductivity that we measure. And one of them is membrane permeability. And one of them is this time it's ion content, not iron content. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's giving us different information again about tissue. So it's not really just about its chemical composition, like susceptibility mapping is giving us. Now it's telling us a little bit more about, let's say, either the, the membrane permeability or the ion content. Wow, there's, there's so much information you can get out of an MRI. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I've converted you. Yay. <laughs> 
So my other question, you were talking about using QSM to monitor functional changes. So I, I thought the functional MRI already looked at the deoxyhemoglobin signal because it's it's the bold that's, signal, right? That's right. That's right. So it is this blood oxygenation level dependent signal. Yeah. So they're both looking at the same thing, just in different ways. So what happens, I'm going to try and sort of tell you the chain of changes that leads to what we're measuring with the different techniques. So in functional MRI, what happens is an area of the brain gets really active. Let's say it's the motor cortex because you're wiggling your fingers or something. Mm -hmm. Then what happens is quite counterintuitive. You get an oversupply of oxygenated blood to that region. That's given this fancy term of functional hyperemia. So even though that area is quite active, it's up a lot of oxygen actually there's loads of extra oxygenated blood coming into that region that means there's less deoxyhemoglobin now deoxyhemoglobin we said has a positive susceptibility so if there's less of that then there's less kind of these field perturbations that means from the signal magnitude point of view our t2 star gets longer that means the signal sort of sticks around longer and we get a relative increase in the signal from what it was before when there was more deoxyhemoglobin around now, if we look at it from the susceptibility point of view, we can just directly probe that change in the susceptibility of the tissue from the decrease in deoxyhemoglobin. So the susceptibility will actually go down because there's less deoxyhemoglobin around an active brain. And so we can measure that directly with the susceptibility map rather than kind of looking downstream at the field perturbations that change the, the T2 star that change the magnitude of the signal. And, and how much time does that save you? Because the haemoglobin response is quite slow. It's like, you know, five seconds for it to change. Is that right? So I don't think it necessarily saves you time because this is all happening on a millisecond time scale. Mm -hmm. But what I do think it will give you is you should be able to localize your signal okay. changes a little bit yeah. better by looking directly at the susceptibility rather than at the field perturbations. And that's because field perturbations and phase changes that are caused by susceptibility changes, they have these two properties. One is that they're non-local. That means they spread out around the susceptibility changes that cause them. And the other one is that they're slightly orientation dependent. So they might depend on the geometrical orientation of whichever structure that is, let's say the blood vessel or the, the microvasculature with respect to the main magnetic field. Yeah. And so that's why the susceptibility can give us a more accurate and perhaps more quantitative handle on mm -hmm. the blood oxygenation changes that are happening yeah. when the brain's activity changes. So you'd be able to measure the signal that's coming from closer to the region of the brain that's active. Are you able to quantify that change in a better way than functional MRI is? I'm not going to say that we're better than functional MRI, but the standard conventional functional MRI. But yes, I mean, that's the idea is that we should be able to, to get this kind of more direct measure of the susceptibility change that's happening rather than this kind of downstream change mm. in the signal magnitude, which can be affected by T2 and on local changes and orientation dependence. So, yeah, that is the idea. The problem is that doing this is really hard because there are a whole bunch of physiological changes that contribute to the functional signal, whether it's magnitude or susceptibility and actually it can be really difficult to get rid of those so you can probably count the number of functional qsm studies on one hand maybe getting to two now because it's so hard to do because you have to do a lot of physiological noise removal mm. so it's tricky so i have my work cut out for me with this erc grant but i'm really excited because my team has just expanded from five to eight people five of those people are going to be working on this erc grant to make this all happen that's really exciting it's really cool you know, talking about your exciting point of growing your group from five to eight, Karin, it makes me realise we haven't asked about your background. We haven't asked about how you got interested in MRI and what your own personal history in academia is. 
I studied natural sciences at Cambridge and I found the physics really hard. So, of course, that's what I chose to specialise in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was thinking about either physics or genetics, but I went for the physics and actually I really enjoyed it. And I was really happy because I stayed for four years and did the kind of MSci thing, which was new back then, a million years ago when I did it. Um, And that meant I got an extra year at university and a field trip to Greece with a geophysics module. So that was really fun. Um, I basically went because my friend was doing geology and she said, well, if you do geophysics, then you can come to Greece with us. And I was like, great. (laughs) I don't know if I remember very much of it, but I did manage to correctly estimate the volume of some mountainside. It was sheer fluke and I won a bottle of Metaxa for it. So that was good. Oh, brilliant. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so that was a detour. Um, I really wanted to use my physics to do something that I felt was kind of helpful or useful in some way. And I thought about being maybe a patent attorney and all kinds of things. Anyway, I ended up doing training uh, on the medical physics NHS training scheme, which at that time was run through IPEM. And so I spent two very happy years based at the Charing Cross and Hammersmith hospitals. And one day a week of those was doing a master's at UCL, in fact, in our own very own department, which was very different back then. I was doing my MRI training with Donald McRobbie, who wrote this fantastic book called MRI from Picture to Proton, which I use a lot in my lectures. Anyway, I really fell in love with MRI and I decided that I wanted to study it more. So I spoke to the graduate tutor in the department, who was then Roger Ordage. He said he had just got a programme grant and had just put in this fantastic high field scanner, which was then the highest field whole body human scanner in Europe. It was a 4.7 Tesla whole body system. And he said he might be able to apply to the Wellcome Trust who'd given him this grant for for a PhD studentship. So lo and behold, he did that. We got it. And I joined him and I did a PhD with Roger and managed to finish the PhD just before the scanner was kind of out of commission. (laughs) It, It did great things. It really had a lot of promise. Anyway, then I went to the big MRI conference in Japan to look at different postdoctoral positions. And I found a position at the National Institutes of Health in the States and went to work there as a visiting fellow. I went for two years and I stayed for six years and that was in an advanced MRI lab and the facilities were just incredible. I was so spoiled. I will probably never again have facilities like that in my life. So we had a wonderful seven Tesla system, one of the earliest seven Tesla systems in the world to work on. Mark Heike, who invented susceptibility weighted imaging, had written a paper suggesting a way that we might calculate the susceptibility of tissues from the phase. And so we published one of the first papers showing how magnetic susceptibility could be done. And then Roger Ordage, who was leaving the department as a professor, I met him at, again, this big MRI conference that is an annual conference that had to go virtual this year, for obvious reasons. And he said that the department were looking for a lecturer in MRI to do a lot of the MRI teaching that he was not going to be doing because he was leaving the department. And so I applied for that position and got it and started back in the department again it was a totally different department in January 2012 so the department had moved to a different building Roger had gone his group had gone the scanner had gone since then I've built my group now I've got eight people in my group so I'm really excited to be leading this MRI group and pushing electromagnetic tissue properties mapping is really what these two fields are called together so susceptibility Mm -hmm. mapping and conductivity mapping we kind of have a joint study group within the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine which is the big MRI society that we're all part of I'm I'm sold. It sounds really fascinating. Um, sounds like the idea of mapping out electrical and magnetic properties 
quantitatively just sounds extremely useful and just basically interesting for its own sake as well. I'd love to know how magnetic and conductive I am just as a point of definition <laughs> and other people as well at risk of sounding egocentric. <laughs> you start bragging like, oh, I'm more conductive than you are. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. But it's, it's all about regions. Which regions do you have high, higher magnet- magnetization or, or conductivity in? But yeah. That's a, that's a good one. I never thought about it like that. I shall just go around saying I can measure how magnetic you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like somehow there's a joke with a resistance movement in there, but I can't think of it. <laughs> I wonder, Karin, it's almost like the joke imaging question, but I'm genuinely interested. What limits the resolution? Do all these techniques have the same resolution limits and what kind of scale are they on? What really limits the resolution of MRI in general is the maximum signal to noise ratio that we can achieve. That's kind of what we can trade in for resolution, if you like. So there's no free lunch in MRI. So we have this whatever maximum SNR signal to noise ratio that we can achieve, and then we can kind of cash it in. We can either image faster or we can increase our resolution and see finer details. So in a way, the resolution limits for most of these techniques are going to be basically the same, whether we're looking at the magnitude or the phase, whether we're looking at the susceptibility and conductivity or the standard, you know, T1 weighted image. That's one of the reasons we go to higher magnetic field strengths in MRIs, because it gives us more signal to noise ratio that we can then trade in for higher resolution if we take the same amount of scan time, let's say. So it's flexible. <laughs> it depends how much SNR you've got. You can always trade yeah. it in. I would say with a state-of-the-art clinical scanner, which is operating at about three Tesla, if we scan for about five minutes using state-of-the-art techniques, we could probably achieve a magnitude image at one millimeter isotropic resolution and similarly acquire our susceptibility maps and conductivity maps with a similar resolution. That's not functional information because for functional information, we have to scan really fast and we have to scan every couple of seconds. And so there we probably have to sacrifice a little bit on the resolution and go for maybe 1.5 millimeter isotropic or two by two by two millimeters. So, yeah, when I say isotropic resolution, I mean a little voxel, which is like a cube with a one millimeter side or two millimeter sides. So, yeah. No, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. I, yeah, that's really pushing everything to its limit, I would say. And you talked about how the field strength of your magnet can improve your signal to noise. Yes. What is the sort of engineering limits? And so you mentioned a seven Tesla scanner. Like how high can you go and, and what are the limits there? I imagine patient safety becomes a problem at some point. So um it's not really patient safety because the magnetic field in itself hasn't really been shown to have any long-lasting biological effect. It's more the engineering limits. So there are currently in the world a handful of 9.4 Tesla human systems. There is a 10 point something Tesla system in Minneapolis. And there are a couple of 11.7 Tesla human systems around. In fact, the NIH did have one just before I left. Unfortunately, the magnet quenched and has taken ever since to be repaired so it hasn't gone back there yet they're also building one of these very strong 11.7 tesla systems in france just outside paris so there are engineering limits to how strong you can build a very homogeneous field over a large enough bore to fit someone in 
In terms of patient comfort, what can happen is that if you move very fast across field lines that are diverging at the bore of one of these magnets, then you might get a little bit dizzy or you might get some biological effects like phosphenes where you see bright flashes across your eyes. But those you can easily mitigate by just moving very, very slowly. So, for example, when you slide someone into a seven Tesla scanner on the scanner table, you move it much more slowly than you do at 3T so that they don't feel sick or nauseous or yeah um, so it's not really anything that's unsafe it's just more that they can have these biological effects that come about is there anything you can tell me to understand what a tesla means like what yes. is what is one tesla for example or, or... yes um that's a really good question i i have these pictures at the beginning of my lectures that i use and i can never remember the numbers but basically the kind of magnets that they used to use in scrapyards to pick up a car are of the order of about half a tesla Right. So that gives you wow. a kind of feeling. So a Tesla is about 50,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. So that's the magnetic field that we're all sitting in now that moves the compass needles or the compass on your iPhone. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really strong. That is mad, isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. You, you described it as magic, I think, <laughs> a couple of times. We talked about the spin being a magic property. We talked about MRI seeming magic because you get in this sci-fi like machine and it whirs and whizzes and then you get a beautiful image it does feel slightly magic doesn't it <laughs> yeah but you can learn all the physics behind it and it can demystify it so yeah come to my lecture course in january <laughs> i'd love to yeah awesome. i think it's quite a common theme with everyone that we've been interviewing is that the physics is so interesting but then the motivation for doing this work is you want to feel like you're using the physics for something important and that's where medical physics is is really nice and you're getting to push the boundaries of physics as well as pushing the boundaries of medicine i guess which is really cool yeah no that's definitely what motivates me at least is wanting to to make that difference ultimately to the patients unfortunately the tra that translational pipeline is always really long so let's say your qsm you've just invented how long will it take to get into the clinic what's the sort of pathway there that's a really good question. In fact, there was a lecture about exactly this topic at our virtual annual meeting of the ISMRM, that's the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine. That talk was talking exactly about this, how long is that translational pipeline? Unfortunately, it's depressingly long. So I think it was kind of a minimum of about 10 years for a technique to get into clinical oh. use, to regular clinical use, but it can be up to 40 years or something horrendous like that. I really hope it's not that long for QSM. I think we can hopefully build on the success of the pre predecessor technique SWI. What it really is going to depend on, I think, is one of the manufacturers picking which technique they want to use. Something we haven't talked about at all in this podcast is how we actually calculate susceptibility from phase images. That's probably because it's quite complicated. But the point is that there are lots of ways of doing that. And that the community, the QSM community, has made lots of efforts to try and converge on the best technique for doing it. The problem is everyone's got their own wonderful technique and they're all optimised for different regions of the body or different applications. And so it's really hard to actually converge on a single technique for use in the clinic. And so that's probably what's holding it up a little bit although we are doing our very best we keep having these qsm challenges to try and figure out who's got the best technique and that's interesting what you said so we're talking about the commercial manufacturers of mri scanners they have yeah. a lot of sway over which techniques actually make it into the hospital that's really true because they provide a lot of the reconstruction software and image analysis software that gets supplied with the scanner and that gets applied automatically to the images. So for example, most of the current scanner manufacturers have 
a technique built in for SWI, this predecessor technique that I talked about for susceptibility weighted imaging. And clinicians love that because it's really well embedded into the clinic and radiologists really like looking at SWI images and picking up microbleeds and things. And I think it really moves things along if one of the manufacturers kind of picks a QSM technique. Maybe we'll put us all out of business as QSM researchers, I don't know. <laughs> We've still got lots of interesting questions to ask. We've got projects in sickle cell anemia, looking at susceptibility changes in the brain and sickle cell anemia. We're also looking at Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. People are starting to apply QSM in the body. We've also got a project looking at changes in oxygenation, so susceptibility changes in tumour oxygenation in head and neck cancer and in prostate cancer. Um, so yeah, there's lots of potential applications and one of the things that motivates me and my team is trying to optimise QSM techniques so that they can be useful in lots of different diseases. Thanks to Dr. Shmureli for sharing her research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of each month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies, which can be found on our website at various times throughout the year. You might also consider following the department on Twitter at UCL MedPhys, that's UCL M-E-D-P-H-Y-S. Bye for now. Bye bye.